to Hypot Enthuse, the monthly podcast from the Faculty of Mathematical and Physical Sciences at UCL, or as we like to call it, MAPS. I'm your host, Malcolm. With me is my co-host, May Manor. Hello. And today we are joined by Dr. Ziri Yunsi. Ziri is a high-energy theoretical astrophysicist working in the Astrophysics Group at the Mullard Space Science Laboratory here at UCL. His background is that he got an MA in Maths from Cambridge in 2006, followed by an MSc in Physics from UCL in 2008. He then started his PhD in Astrophysics at UCL, which he completed in 2014. He was an Alexander von Humboldt Fellow at the Goethe Universität Frankfurt, and is currently a Leverhulme Trust Early Career Research Fellow at UCL. Siri, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So one thing that I found when doing a bit of research for this, uh, you speak three languages, which is English, German, and Tamazight? Tamazight, yeah. Tamazight. And that your name actually means moonlight in Tamazight. Mm -hmm. So one question we want to ask was, has your interest in space and in astrophysics predated your university career? Is it something that's been with you since birth with a name like that? (laughs) Well, actually, I wasn't always into space and astrophysics. I wanted to, I, I love dinosaurs, so I wanted to be a paleontologist. Oh, wow. So I was kind of more into that side of things, archaeology, paleontology, and so on. But sort of when I was six or seven, I used to read a lot of sort of uh, pictorial encyclopedias and so on. And I was really fascinated by space and the idea that there was just this almost infinite, you know, void out there to mm. explore that was, you know, sparsely filled with stars and maybe planets and extraterrestrial life and all sorts of bizarre landscapes. I mean, for me, it was just mind-blowing that there are all of these possibilities there are these objects that we didn't understand which were like black holes which i guess is what we're talking about today which are you know more powerful than perhaps even entire galaxies and so on and it's just the scale of it all just was mind-blowing so around about six or seven i sort of really started to get into that television programs i used to watch there was Things like Sky at Night and mm-hmm. even Blue Peter and just books I used to read as well. So so with that in mind, what made you choose to do a maths undergraduate degree rather than go straight into sort of physics or astrophysics? Gosh, well, actually, in hindsight, I, I shouldn't have done maths, which is why <laughs> oh, no. I went from maths to physics to astrophysics. But actually, it gave me the training that I needed. Yeah. But why I went into maths? Well, it was something I, it was a subject that I, I found quite easy at school, but I really enjoyed it too. And it's something I would sort of study in my my spare time as well, um, in addition to the stuff that we did at school. And I thought, well, you know, it'd be lovely to go somewhere like Cambridge. Uh, They have a very good maths course. It's Mm. challenging. And I thought at the time that, oh, you know, I would solve things like, um, I don't know, Riemann hypothesis Mm -hmm. and things like that. I was... Well, I was ambitious. <laughs> Simple, <laughs> easy task. Yeah, right? And I, I read things like Simon Singh's book, you know, on... Um, uh, Fermat's Last Theorem. Yeah, Fermat's Last Theorem nice. and this sort of thing. And it really inspired me. Uh, and, and I studied maths and I did enjoy it. But I kind of realised that, first of all, there were two aspects to continuing a career in academia beyond an undergraduate degree. And uh, The first was actually research and research can either be individual or it can be collaborative Mm -hmm. and I realized that I was a much more social person and mathematics was much more kind of you know it's it's, it's not I wouldn't say an exclusively individual pursuit but it is a you know it's a very abstract thing and the second thing was I realized that I actually liked applied mathematics it's more towards the physics and I was more and more interested in physics and Mm -hmm. that's when I studied for example general relativity which is Einstein's theory of gravity in my undergraduate and I sort of fell in love with that side of it 
And that's why I ended up going towards physics, and that's how I ended up at UCL, to do physics mm-hmm. there. So. I mean, this is, again, quite similar to the podcast with Christina, where she had an undergraduate in maths and mm. then went off in all these directions. Yeah. Um, and her response was that basically, you know, she liked doing all these things, but maths seemed to be the one that opened the most doors. And I think that's also kind of filled in from what you said. You know, I don't know if it would have been possible to do an undergrad in physics and then go into doing a, a master's in pure maths or something in the same way that the reverse is. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a really good point. Maths gives you that sort of formal training. It's a sort of a language, if you will, in which a lot of our problems are formulated. Physics is sort of, you know, it's a, it's a phenomenological thing. You see things happening around you, you try and describe them. But how do you describe them? You describe them in the language of say mathematics mm-hmm. so understanding mathematics it's not absolutely true an equation is not the truth it's a an approximation it's a description but knowing mm-hmm. the mathematics behind that gives you an understanding of that how it's all connected there, there are fundamental concepts deeper at, and the mathematics in a sense connects all of those things and yeah. it, it just uh, it gives you a kind of insight and ex- like a toolkit so mm-hmm. you can look at different physical problems and you have a means to Uh, to not just study them and work on them, but to kind of understand them more deeply. So I think it was actually, in hindsight, it was pure luck that (laughs) ended up doing that, actually. So there we go. Sounds like it worked out pretty well. And you've mentioned there as well the the theory of general relativity and how you kind of fell in love with that. And Mm. that actually seems like it ties in really well with what you're what you're doing mm. now in black hole research. Mm. And um, we were talking a little Mm. bit about this just now, how um, if you could maybe say a bit more about how your work currently is actually a really beautiful sort of proof of what Einstein predicted with general mm. relativity. Mm. So, yeah, so I actually, so um, my master's, I did, a, I first had my proper experience of research here at UCL in my master's degree in physics, here at PNA actually. Mm. And uh, the project I was given at the time was, uh, it was nothing to do with black holes at all, actually. Mm. It was to do with... Um, bear on acoustic oscillations if that means anything to anybody and i'm sure it'll mean something <laughs> to someone out there and it was a, it was a, a fascinating project but for the phd i was offered a, what was called radiation transport in strong gravity which is how to calculate the propagation of light around say a black hole or another very compact object with an intense gravitational field around it mm-hmm. And uh, it just sounded amazing. It was a sort of combination of lots of mathematical things, lots of physical things, numerical things. So I saw it as an opportunity to really learn a lot of skills. It was a sort of interdisciplinary project. Um, I didn't know it would lead me to where I am now. Sort of on the horizon, no pun intended, we knew about things like the Black Hole Cam uh, project, which is what I ended up joining in Frankfurt. And we knew that there were people working on concepts to do with imaging black holes at radio frequencies. Um, I knew of those things. I talked about them, actually, in the sort of possible future directions in my thesis, PhD Mm, thesis. But I, at the time, had no idea that I would actually end up working in that collaboration. Right. Um, And it was only when I was looking for my first postdoc and there were a few that I applied for, and someone mentioned to me, actually it was my PhD advisor who put me in touch because he knew one of the guys who was the PI, one of the three PIs of the European project Black Hole Cam, and said, put in an application there. And so I did, and I ended up working in this European project in Frankfurt for nearly four years, and pretty much just after I started, we ended up becoming a part of the the, inter- the big international project, the Event Horizon Telescope project. That was in sort of October 2014 onwards. Okay. And that's how I ended up in there. Oh, wow. So, okay, so it was really, it, it wasn't kind of something that you had been really thinking about seriously until kind of... 
I've been thinking about the science, yeah, but I hadn't been thinking about getting into that project. I, I had no idea that there was a way in, and it didn't seem immediately obvious at the time that being a part of something like the Event Horizon Telescope collaboration was possible. Right. But at least there was a way to join this European project. And that project actually was a, what's called an ERC Synergy Grant project. Mm -hmm. So there were three PIs. It's that they are the largest European Research Council grants awarded to astrophysics projects. It was the only one at the time which had been awarded. And it meant that three different institutes came together as one uh, team, basically working together and so we had like the Max Planck Institute in Bonn and they would deal with some of the sort of data correlation and stuff of the radio observations of black holes which I guess we'll talk about soon <laughs> yeah. and then we had uh, the group that I was in which worked more on the sort of theoretical stuff the maths the physics and the numerical calculations of what the images would look like so that we can compare them with the observations and then there was the group in Nijmegen who actually did a bit of both uh, who do do a bit of both, I should mm. say. We're still working together. The project's not over yet. <laughs> and, um, yeah, um, and once, you know, sort of assembled this critical mass of, of experts, then I think that people, you know, on the other side of the pond sort of took us a bit more seriously. They saw that we had a lot to offer as well, and, you know, we were part of this. We brought not just people, resources as well, but mostly people. Yeah, it's a great project. I was looking through your academic profile uh, just to try and see... <laughs> I should update that. <laughs> <laughs> academic stalking. Perfect, perfect for historical information. So the first mention I could find of a black hole mm. on any of your papers, I think, was from 2012? Yes, that was my first PhD paper. I had the title here as General Relativistic Radiative Transfer, Formulation and Emission from Structured Tori Around Black Holes. <laughs> yes. Wow. So Back. Bit of a mouthful. <laughs> so. I'm, I'm surprised I got through it all in one piece, quite frankly. No, well done. But I thought it was interesting to, to look at something where the first paper you had done is 2012. Yes. Obviously, you have been doing work before that mm. in preparation for the paper. And then this leads through to the discovery of the image of the black hole in mm. 2019. Mm. Now, it would be very easy for someone like me to just draw a straight line and go, you went from A to B. Uh, yes. I'm assuming that it was a much more complex path, should we say? Yeah, um, much more complex. Mm. Um, the kind of stuff that I was doing in my PhD, yes, it was black hole science and so on, but it wasn't really about black hole imaging. I was actually working more on the kind of science which applied to lower mass black holes. So. So just for context, the Event Horizon Telescope presented an image of a supermassive black hole. It's actually one of the biggest in the universe. It's wow. six and a half billion times the mass of the sun. But this black <laughs> so hole is, you know, it's, it's a, people throw this word out there all the time, but mm -hmm. it's a behemoth. It's enormous. And we can just about resolve the scale of the event horizon of this black hole, or of this actually the accretion flow, the matter that's swirling around it and becomes hot and bright. And that's that light that we detect, actually. So it's mm -hmm. a ring of matter around the black hole. Um, the kind of work that I did in my PhD, which carried over nicely into this project, was actually looking at uh, X-ray iron line fluorescence uh, from accretion disks around black holes, but much smaller black holes, so the physics is quite different. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was working with certain numerical methods and techniques at the time, but um, after my PhD, um, there are a few people in the UK working on this sort of stuff, but very few, who, if any, who are working on doing what we call radiation transport um, in very complex dynamical settings where, like, for example, all of that matter, that, that plasma actually, ionized mm -hmm. gas, that's swirling around the black hole, evolving in time, and it's a messy environment where light can be absorbed, re-emitted, scattered, polarized, mm -hmm. and so on. I had to actually go abroad to 
uh, have the time to work on that because there weren't really any postdoctoral opportunities in the UK to do that. Maybe going off topic here, actually. No, 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 no. So, that's still that's yeah. still interesting. Yeah, it's all still recording. That's fine. <laughs> so, but so, how did I end up in the EHT yeah. and working on this stuff by chance, as it happens, really by chance, not by design. Um, it often seems to be the way with yes. some of these big. It's reassuring. And I, and I was, I was, yeah, absolutely. Big, and it shows you like, but it, serendipity is actually a big part of research. I think you know, it's sort of you have to be ready for those opportunities when they come. Sure, mm -hmm. and that's your technical training. But you also have to be patient and hope that there's some. Because I could have gone into something completely different. There were other things I could have done, and in hindsight, it worked out well. But I had no idea at the time. Um, I was also very fortunate in that the team that I joined in Frankfurt, I, what I did, what I do, was unique within that team. So that gave me the sort of room to grow and um, interact with people on my own terms and sort of lead my own projects. And that was very important. There weren't like three other versions of me there, <laughs> all of us competing, mm. you know. So it was a, a, a really wonderful time for me to develop as a researcher and build collaboration networks with people. We've all since sort of moved on. I'm here now at UCL again. Others have taken on tenure positions in other universities around the world, but we all work together. It's great. That sounds brilliant. So, and what exactly was it that you were doing that was the kind of unique role within that team? So my job was to basically take what I'd developed and learned here at UCL and build it further. And what that meant was, for example, we would do what are called general relativistic magneto-hydrodynamic simulations. It's very, a very fancy way of basically saying you have a fluid, it's magnetized, you just put it around a black hole and you see what happens. <laughs> you mm. just basically. put it there. It's <laughs> simple as that. pretty much as simple as that. You nice. just take that magnetic field and you put a small perturbation to it and an instability grows and then that instability causes some of that uh, plasma to fall onto the black hole mm -hmm. and some of it will escape because there's a transport of angular momentum in and out and you get a big relativistic jet like these mm -hmm. huge jets we see in some galaxies and then you ask yourself what would that look like because that's just a simulation so you have to then figure out how the light comes from this simulation and is received here on earth mm -hmm. and um, it's complicated by the fact that black holes have very strong gravitational fields yeah. so the light doesn't travel in straight lines it does crazy stuff mm -hmm. so we have to solve the equations for the motion of light rays, so-called oh, wow. geodesic equations. We also have to solve, on top of those uh, light ray trajectories, the light rays are passing through all this dust and gas and matter, and different things are happening as they propagate. And so you have to build in all of these effects. And then once that's escaped from the area around the black hole, it travels for, in the case of M87, I think it's uh, 65, uh, how many million 55 years? 55 million years, yeah. <laughs> 55 million years. So a lot can happen in 55 million years. Yeah, I can imagine. And, and, and so you have to build, have models of the intergalactic medium. And worst of all is what happens when it reaches the atmosphere, because the EHT is a network of radio telescopes. So some telescopes are at different altitudes, different geographical locations. So the, there are many different systematic effects mm. that come into play. And all of that has to be built in. Now that I didn't work on specifically, I worked with people also when I was in Frankfurt but you can see there's a whole sort of pipeline yeah. and there's like no one person who can actually do this so my job was to calculate what would happen with the light how does it escape and then at the very end we have to convolve that mm. with the, all of this atmospheric stuff with the de different telescopes the observing times how long are they pointing at the black hole and they're off because the earth rotates uh, even continental shift is important because the, those light rays so that actually 
as radio waves, I should okay. say, mm. um, when they're received at each telescope, um, the, the EHT is a network of radio telescopes. So you have to very accurately record the arrival times of those those radio waves. And you do that using uh, atomic clocks, they're actually hydrogen masers, mm -hmm. and they have an accuracy of better than one second in 100 million years. And you need that kind of accuracy wow. to, to have a precise, precise. It's yeah. super precise, and it's just about enough for us, really. Yeah. Um, and, and you use this to uh, basically correlate. So you, you, you know that the signal is arriving at slightly different times and it's interferometry, a little bit like the sort of you guys, I'm sure, have heard of LIGO and Virgo and the gravitational yeah. wave interferometers. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's a similar thing where you know that they, they arrive at slightly different times mm -hmm. in different places, and you have to very precisely measure that difference in time. Mm -hmm. And so there is an awful lot of science, of theory, of simulation, of engineering yeah. that goes into this. And so the EHT is really a, a huge team of yeah. people. Um, Describe yeah. that really well yeah, for yeah, such a complex sort of project <laughs> across so many places as well. So there, there were a number of different questions that, that came up to me yeah. while I was looking at um, the details of, of the black hole image. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing that I noticed was there were quite a few people, um, non-scientific people, were referring to this as the first ever photograph Ooh. of a black hole. Yes. Now, <laughs> obviously it's not a photograph in the way that we nope. would strictly think of it. So... Mm. Obviously, all you know when I speak to you, or when we read any of the official documentation, it talks about you know imaging a black hole. Mm -hmm. I think we most people understand how a photograph works. Mm -hmm. That light goes in through a lens, hits a sensor or a piece of film, and the image is trapped there. Right. But what you're talking about is radio waves right. reaching various different telescopes, mm -hmm. and those images then having to be combined into something. Right. So if one were able to be, say, a couple of light years away from this black hole rather than 55 million, mm. is what you would see with your eyes similar to the image that's created? Or is that sort of a, a fake coloured version? or a, a... Uh, that, That's a fantastic question, or actually a sort of... An umbrella of many questions. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> rambling nonsense. No, no, it's not rambling right. nonsense. It's very yeah. good. So, I, I'll start from the top if that's mm. okay. So, um, is it an image? What does it mean to say we have an image of a black hole? I think is the first thing. Uh, I've been asked this question many times, and every time I'm asked it, I've always asked it from a slightly different angle, mm. and my answer, I'd like to think, evolves. And so, what I would say is, um, is ultrasound imaging? Um, you know, is uh, sonar imaging, uh, tomography, uh, it is a form of imaging, it is a representation, you would never see it, but it does give you a sense of the structure of an object, or of the scale, or whatever property it is you're trying to pick up, right? And so, then what is this black hole image? Well, first of all, it's not an image of a black hole. Black hole, by definition, is black, so it has an event horizon. Mm -hmm. And anything which crosses that event horizon, even light, I'm, I'm sure you all know, uh, never comes back. It's, it's mm -hmm. trapped forever, as far as we know, according to Einstein's theory of general relativity. So there's a boundary. And at the edge of that boundary is what we call an unstable photon orbit, because you need to see this thing with light. And that's a region where light rays can actually move on spherical orbits around the black hole. And that's a bizarre concept. Light itself is orbiting around the black wow, hole. Not, not matter, light. <laughs> so it'd be like if you stood near the edge of the event horizon, you would see multiple images of the back of your own head. 
because light oh, would God. be circulating Ooh. around the black hole. So I can't, you know, it's hard to visualize. That's pretty cool. So you have to check out my YouTube channel, which you're telling me you <laughs> Shameless yeah, plug I mean, of my videos. No, it should be. We're just like messing around with this in the I was, studio. If you I was also going to say, as, as a man who is rapidly balding, the last thing I want to see is multiple lenses <laughs> at the back of my own head. But. <laughs> But but that's light does crazy things yeah, around a black hole, and um, yeah. So 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 what we do pick up is is the light that's produced from matter moments before mm -hmm. it crosses that threshold, that event horizon. So as that that matter, that hot gas, uh, starts to fall onto the black hole, it's spinning rapidly. Mm -hmm. You know, a, a good fraction of the speed of light actually, depending on how rapidly that black hole is spinning, and it gets extremely hot and luminous and it radiates. And it radiates across the entire electromagnetic spectrum, so from radio waves all the way through to X-rays, gamma rays, and so on. But there are bands, uh, only bands which we can observe, because a lot of that radiation will be absorbed by the intervening medium, so dust okay. and gas and so on. Turns out that radio waves, for the same reason that we use them for communications here on mm -hmm. Earth, are also really uh, a very good wavelength for us to pick to observe a black hole because they can travel long distance and be distances and be weakly attenuated okay right just like they can travel around the, the curvature of the earth they can travel across mountains and so on pretty they can, handy they, yes pretty handy <laughs> and they can cover that void quite well and it also turns out that because our telescopes are on earth you have an atmosphere and that that atmosphere also has a window and there are only a few mm. wave bands that you can see through relatively clearly. Mm -hmm. and it turns out that the wave band or the frequency range that the EHT, Event Horizon Telescope, is tuned to, which is 230 gigahertz, well, that's a wavelength of 1.3 millimeters. So you can actually measure that on a ruler. That's mm -hmm. the wavelength of the radio waves we detect. Those, they not only can pass all the way through the matter near the edge of the black hole to the Earth's atmosphere, they can also pass through the atmosphere. So we can detect right. them. So we're really lucky, actually, Amazing. that we have that window of opportunity to see. So it's so it's 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 an image of sorts, mm. but it's a, it's um, it's an image of these radio waves, and these aren't like photons, like discrete packets. Mm -hmm. They're waves, and so you have diffraction patterns, mm -hmm. of course. And so in the end, what you end up with is an Im a very sparse image, which is more like a set of diffraction patterns. And if you have heard of Fourier. Mm -hmm. Fourier analysis and the Fourier transform. Oh, yes. Do the inverse Fourier transform <laughs> of what we get, and you get an image. So that's what we do. And in that inverse process, you have to fold in all of that atmospheric stuff, all of the things that I mentioned earlier, yeah. and more. And then once you do that, you get an image, a representation. But in Fourier space, you don't have to have a complete Fourier image. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when you do the inverse, you get something, but there are gaps. And it's the gaps that we have to fill. Yeah. And right. that's the devil in the detail. <laughs> so. A big task, that's, yeah. It, it suddenly explains now, because one of the other things I was reading was about the, the various petabytes of data mm. from the various oh, yeah. different telescopes that had to be brought together. Yeah. And when you think of, you know, however many how megabytes many, yeah. the yeah, three and a half, photo I think, is. for the 20, three and a half petabytes, I think, roughly, for the 2017 observations in And April. how many megabytes are there in a... Uh, thousand, well, 1,024 megabytes in a gigabyte, 1,024 gigabytes in a terabyte, <laughs> and then again, 1,024 terabytes in a petabyte. Okay. I hope I'm right here. I was, <laughs> I was watching earlier uh, Shepard Dullman's TED Talk, mm. Uh, where, where I just had to mention this statistic, mm -hmm. which I, I love, where there was a picture of somebody at one of the telescopes that's near the poles with uh, half a petabyte's worth of hard drives in front wow. of them. 
And uh, Shepard referred to that as uh, the lifetime selfie budget of 5,000 people. <laughs> Wow, that's an interesting way of putting it in context. Which, which is an interesting way of contextualizing <laughs> that amount of information. So how many selfies are these people taking each year? That's a good I, question. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm assuming it's maybe like two or three a day mm, for their quite, lifetime. Quite about a thousand a year. For, for, for 5,000 people <laughs> is, half of, <laughs> is half or even less of the data from one of these telescopes. Yeah. So that gives you some idea of the, the ridiculous massive. amount that's yeah. involved. It's massive. Um, and growing, yeah. Yeah. So, relating to this, so there are two things that I want to mention, mm. which I think are interconnected. Uh, one which is uh, a technical point about what the Event Horizon Telescope was doing, and one which was uh, to do with the, the public understanding of that information. Mm -hmm. So I'll start with the public understanding, which was that when the image was first released, mm. we were saying earlier, probably about 80-85% of the people we know were astounded and amazed and it. astonished about how this wonderful piece of scientific work had been done. Mm -hmm. And the other 10-15% basically looked and went... It's a bit blurry. It's a, it's a bit blurry, isn't it? <laughs> Added to this, I know that M87 was not the only... I, I'm very glad that's tickled you. <laughs> it, was, it was either tickling you, you or, or, or storming no, off. Upset. It's just it's really hard to make that image. Well, <laughs> so, I know, this was, this was what I was going to try to is that um, the telescope was looking at um, M87, but I believe was also looking at... Now, is it Sagittarius A or A star? A star, yep. Sagittarius uh, galactic a star, center. Yep. which is a thousand times... Closer mm. than M87, but also a thousand times smaller. That's right. Yeah. So, firstly, is there a reason why it's an image of M87 rather than Sagittarius A? Star? Was it just luck from the weather on that day? No, or? no, no. There's there are very good reasons, and that is a great question. Uh, but first, why I laughed? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please. If I may, because of course. Um, so just to give a sense of of the of the. In insanely high resolutions involved with the EHT. So I, I, I always use this analogy. The resolution of the Event Horizon Telescope is so high that you it would be like having eyes so such high resolution and resolving power that you could resolve an orange on the surface of the moon from where we are right now. Okay. Or you could see individual atoms if you extended your finger arm out in front of you and looked at your index finger. You would see the individual atoms which comprise your finger. It, it, you know That's that it's it's mind-blowingly high resolution, wow. and you, we can just about resolve the scale of the diameter of that black hole. Wow! Uh, so this is the beginning, and of course we'll get higher resolutions in time, and I guess we'll talk about that later. Um, so yeah, it's it, it's actually an amazing feat that we've even been able to do this. By the way, to the very cutting edge of technology, of and, course, and, and science. Definitely. Um, so sorry. So the original question, which so I was going to ask, why not? Uh, why was why it these, seven rather than Sagittarius yeah. A? And then as a follow-on, if it had been an image of Sagittarius A star, mm. because it's that much closer, mm. would that have been a quote, less blurry, unquote, image. Ah, yes. Okay, great question. So, first of all, why M87? Uh, M87, because it's a lot more massive. Mm -hmm. It's more than a thousand times larger. Uh, and, what, and so, Einstein tells us that actually the size of the black hole is effectively proportional to the mass alone. So, if you increase the mass by a factor of 10, then you increase the size of the black hole by a factor of 10. So, there's that linear scaling relation. Um, but you actually have what's called a characteristic time scale. And so actually the time scale, what we call the gravitational uh, crossing time scale, also increases. So mm -hmm. M87 has a time scale of around eight and a half hours or so. 
So you don't expect to see significant structural variations in the matter around the black hole on timescales shorter than about eight and a half hours. Now, the galactic center black hole, Sagittarius A star, is, is a thousand times smaller more than a thousand times smaller. So you go from eight and a half hours to around 20 seconds. Wow, right. okay. So now it's varying really quickly and even, even faster than that. And so it goes from taking a picture of something which is relatively static from day to day to something which is varying on the time scale of seconds. Mm. And, and you have a certain what we call integration time of your observations that they can resolve and it's very hard to resolve. So it's like, it's like a diff the analogy is, it's like trying to take a picture of a parked car versus a car on a motorway speeding mm. by. Yeah. You know, or German Autobahn where there's no speed limit. <laughs> like that, right? So it, there's a technical challenge there. Mm -hmm. um, the other issue is that we live in the plane of our Milky Way, and we live towards the edge of one of the spiral arms, and so there's an awful lot of dust for us to have to look through. Yeah. Whereas actually M87, although it's much further away, you just look up, and you just have the intergalactic medium, which is a little bit easier for us to deal with. Mm. We and partly because it's less turbulent and and so on but actually also because we have a lot of sources that we look at which are extragalactic so we have calibration so we know how we have good models of what's happening along different lines of science and so on so it's a little bit easier to see so the combination of having less uh, systematics in terms of the intergalactic medium the variation and also the fact that things are varying more slowly mm -hmm. actually meant that m87 was technically speaking easier mm -hmm. to create an image of uh, the galactic center has been a lot more challenging and we're still working on that now but it's looking promising wow that's exciting so, that was we, exactly there might be some results coming soon so we'll ah, see watch so, the space that's really space. exciting yeah. so if if i had to ask mm. if tomorrow somebody were to come to you and go brilliant we've we've managed to create an image of sagittarius a star mm -hmm. What differences would you expect to see because of that that twenty second duration? Rather, is it possible to predict how how yes. it's likely to? Yeah, work? It, okay. it's absolutely possible to predict, and that is my favorite question because that's my job is to, <laughs> is to create these images and predict, right? Yeah. And 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 the prediction would be that it's going to. What's interesting about Sagittarius A star is that uh, so, so we, we, we call galaxies which have a black hole in the centre, and we believe all of them have a supermassive, rather, black hole in the centre, active galactic nuclei. Now, our galaxy is, for some reason, not particularly active. Mm. And most of the ones which are have huge, enormous relativistic jets, like okay. M87, but we don't see a huge mm. jet. We do see a lot of variability at different wavelengths, but not on the scale of an, an enormous jet, for mm. example we have a very different viewing geometry. Mm -hmm. So when we look at M87, we're kind of almost looking face on to the black hole. So the black hole has an axis about which it rotates. And we're looking almost down, completely down that axis at a, a very shallow angle of about 17 degrees. Okay. Or actually, strictly speaking, to all the people who are in EHD, it's 160 degrees, 63 degrees, I know. So, but it's roughly 17 degrees. And, and so you're looking almost face on. But for the galactic center, again, because, you know, we're in the plane of the Milky Way, mm -hmm. you're looking more edge on. Mm -hmm. Now, that totally changes the shape of the lensing of the light coming from the black hole mm -hmm. or from the matter around the black hole. And it will lead to a characteristically different image because the shape of that ring, so we see a ring in M87, yeah. that's almost a perfect circle, mm -hmm. we believe, according to Einstein, because the, there's a sort of uniformity 
because the light rays are sort of uh, almost symmetrical in their distribution in, in terms of lensing. Mm -hmm. So if you look directly down the pole, you see a perfect circle, and we see something very close to that. But if you go towards 90 degrees, mm -hmm. perpendicular to that axis, you'll actually see a distortion, and the shadow, if the black hole is spinning moderately or greater, mm -hmm. will actually become quite asymmetric. And so you should oh. see something quite different. So kind of pear-shaped, for want of a yeah, it's Yeah, it's more pear-shaped or more sort of, uh, what would be the word, like uh, oblate, okay. perhaps? Yeah. Uh, it's sort of squashed. It's kind of like yeah. squashed. So like take a circle and you could fix the height of the circle, but you sort of squidge the left side more towards the right. right. I see. Expect something a little bit more like that. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. And, 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 the, and so in that M87 image, which every, I think everyone has seen, you see an asymmetry in the brightness. Yeah, it appears brighter in the south. Is this because of the uh, Doppler effect? Because exactly. of the spinning of the exactly. Earth. So it's spinning towards us, and that's why it looks brighter in the in the south mm -hmm. part, southern part, and in the northern part, it's dimmer because it's receding away from us. Yeah. And so there's that competition. But now, for the galactic center, the, the theory and the models that we run, and that I've been working on in the EHT, tell us that actually there should be a greater contrast in the brightness. Uh, and so there are a lot of things that we're looking out for. Mm -hmm. We have some expectations as to what we should see, but there is no consensus because actually different observations from different observing missions, they actually infer different inclination angles. Okay, okay. and that would so, massively affect. Exactly. So we're not sure. So actually this is going to be an exciting one because mm. maybe we will reach a consensus on this. That's extremely cool. So, this, yeah. this really interests me because if you think of representations of black holes through popular culture, mm. they're always spherical. Yeah. Mm. It's always assumed that there will be a sphere. And I wonder if, by chance, the, the image had been from Sagittarius instead of MA7, the fact that it would have been asymmetric in mm. that sense, it might have been less immediately taken on by people because it didn't match up with the image of a black hole that they had in their minds. Mm. So it's interesting that the, the symmetry of MA7 mm. possibly had something to do with how it was uh, taken on so much. Mm. This might be an odd question to ask, and because I'm asking about something visual, it's going to be a real difficult to try and get across in an audio medium. <laughs> yeah, but if it. we uh, picture the, the image of the black hole from M87, mm. you have the very bright ring around uh, the outside, which is the event horizon, mm -hmm. and then all the light within that circle is being sucked into the black hole. Mm. But the black hole itself is not the size of the void in the centre of that ah, image. That's a great question. The black hole itself is actually smaller than that. That's right. So if we picture that image of the, the event horizon on that image being, say, a metre across, mm -hmm. how large is the black hole? Is it sort of most of that? Is it 90 centimetres or is it like a pinprick in the middle? Mm -hmm. Or mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And that depends on how rapidly the black hole is spinning, uh -huh. which we don't really know. Okay. We have some ideas of a kind of magnitude. It could mm. be spinning in one direction, it could be spinning in the other. Um, we think it's spinning quite rapidly because you have a very powerful jet and so on. Um, but we don't know precisely what that number is. We call it the dimensionless spin parameter. And the magnitude of that can range between zero and one. And we think it's somewhere closer to one than zero. Okay. Um, and what that means is that the if it's closer to one, then there's an orbit on which uh, particles can orbit the black hole and remain stable. It's called mm -hmm. the innermost stable circular orbit, and that would define the edge of that accretion disk of light that, that we see. 
Um, and as you increase the spin towards one, the edge of that, that accretion flow can get closer and closer to the event horizon itself. And so effectively, mm -hmm. they would coincide if the black hole were, were rotating what we say, call maximally. Mm -hmm. But it, it won't be rotating maximally for various reasons, physically speaking. Um, so there is a gap. And the question, then, what would the gap be if, if the black hole itself had a diameter of one meter? Um, well, let's see. Um, so if the black hole is not rotating, then if it's one meter for the black hole, the edge of the disk would be around six meters. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then if it's spinning maximally, then they would coincide. Right. Oh, and so if it's around 0 0.9375 to 9 0 0.98, then there may be, be, be like one meter versus one point, gosh, I, I should know, 1.16 to 1.2 meters, something like this. But still so pretty the, close. The black really hole is, is a large quantity of that that space in the middle. It's, it's not a large just quantity, a in the middle. But it, 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 if you were to put a percentage, mm. it's, it's maybe, if we think in terms of radius now, because it's easier for me to think that way, sure. then it would be maybe somewhere like uh, 80 to 90 percent would be the black hole if it's spinning at a kind of rate that we think it is. Mm. That's a very rough off the top of the head figure there. No, but but there, there's a gap, yes, mm. and that's that's a very important point to raise, actually. No, um, and, um, actually, you were speaking a little bit about the popular science sort of mm. imagining of a black hole, and I think that kind of leads into the kind of... Did you feel surprised at how, how sort of far this image spread and how much the public were actually really interested in how this kind of got on the covers of, of loads of the media, mm. sort of publications. Um, do you think it is because we kind of are fascinated by these really mysterious objects? Yeah. No, that's a, that's a fantastic question. Um, I think personally, and probably I, I, I think most of us, were completely taken aback yeah. at the reception that this image received. Uh, we, so we actually first saw images um, around uh, June, July 20, 2018. Oh, wow, so like more oh, than a year before. Almost a year before, mm -hmm. yeah. And and it's sort of because you've, because at least for myself personally, I've been working on such images for years. And so it was kind of, I, I don't want to say underwhelming, but it's just <laughs> like, oh, wow, it looks kind of like what we expected. That's <laughs> weird. Uh, that's great. But also, what does that mean? And, and so there were just so many questions. And we, you know, we were divided into various teams to try and understand how to create this image and then reach a consensus using different what we call reconstruction algorithms for mm -hmm. images that we can reach a consensus and that our images uh, are similar enough and, and so on and so forth. And we knew that it was an important result, but I don't think most people had any idea that it would resonate with the public mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in the way that it has. And I, I suppose there's a sort of beautiful simplicity to the image. Mm. It's a ring of light. It's bright. Uh, it's mysterious. And I think when you hear black hole, you know, it's mysterious in and of itself. And the image, I feel, in, in a lot of ways does it justice. Mm. And I think the, the term black hole, thanks to people like Stephen Hawking and other great scientists, you know, it, it has... Uh, if you will enter the vernacular, it's become a sort of like a term that everybody's familiar with. Everyone has seen films like Interstellar and there are much older mm -hmm. films which depict black holes as well. So I think it's always been there in the public consciousness. Mm -hmm. And now finally we have an image of one. And I think people, if you look at the media response, so every time I give a, a, a talk, 
I show, I, I, I open with sort of, what did Twitter say? Or, you know, <laughs> and you see all very these crazy risky approach to Very risky approach. <laughs> but they have things like the eye of Sauron. Oh, my or... God, that's what I just said. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah no, because um, Malcolm showed me this YouTube video, um, which he'd created a simulation mm. of um, what it might look like to fall into a black hole. For people who are listening, yeah. go on YouTube now and search for Falling Into a Black Hole. It's on Ziri's own YouTube channel. It's got 2.8 million views. It's about three minutes long, and it's absolutely mind-blowing. It really so. is. We were just kind of... <laughs> I just looked very technophobic. I was kind of looking looking through my phone. But, yeah, it did really... It, I made that comparison exactly with the Eye of Sauron. It just looks so kind of different to, to anything that we would mm. imagine in, mm. in our universe. So it's pretty, pretty cool stuff. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it was, uh, it was an amazing result. And I think on the day, everyone was just, you know, inundated with requests and, and, and commentary, you know, requests for comment mm. and so on, and a specialist opinion. And, um, yeah, I, I'd say that it was only then that you sort of really appreciated uh, what it meant. Mm. But there's also the sort of burden as a scientist of, you know, you don't have so much time to sit back and say, hey, you know, well, this is amazing. We've done great work here. Let's take it easy now. You mm. kind of have to think, well, what's next? And mm. what does it mean? What can we learn from this image? And that actually, we're doing a lot of work now to try and understand this because it is an image. And as we mentioned earlier, we discussed earlier that, you know, what, what, what is an image and mm. what can we say about that? And these are important questions and uh, we're trying to, 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 you know, understand things like can we estimate the mass of the black hole? Yes, we can. 6.5 plus or minus 0.7 times, so billion solar masses. Mm -hmm. That sounds like that's not a good margin of error. It's actually fantastic. Mm. <laughs> it's the, the best sizes. so far. And, you know, um, so we've got a very good uh, constraint on the mass there. Spin we're working on. We'll see soon mm -hmm. if we have better constraints, maybe. And um, we're looking at the galactic center, too. So there is a lot of science, too. But what's great is that it's, it's something which I think the, the public really appreciates. And we're very lucky, really, to work in a sort of science at a time where people are more interested in, in, in science because of people uh, who work very hard in, in reaching out to the public and communicating science. I mean, you, you briefly touched on interstellar mm. and, and images of, of black holes in there. I know that there's, um, I think, uh, as you mentioned, the, the image that was produced was very, very similar to the kind of simulations that you'd already predicted, which is obviously quite satisfying to, mm. to see that thing of, you know, it's, it's like when they dropped a hammer and a feather on the surface of the moon <laughs> and went, well done, Galileo, you were, you were correct. Mm. Having done this work, what are your opinions about some of the representations of black holes in popular culture? You know, do you watch Interstellar and go, oh no, they've got this completely wrong? <laughs> Short Did answer, you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> kind of imagine so. Um, have Have you played Fortnite by any chance? Um, I know of it, and I know of its depiction of the black hole when they took a break, right? Yeah. And I saw this, and there was a colleague actually who wrote an article about, you know, how does he feel as a video game player who plays Fortnite about this? Mm. It wasn't a bad depiction, but, you know, okay. there, are, there are various things which could be improved. That's to be a very measured, physically <laughs> not accurate. Mm. I mean, but, that, you know, as, a, as, a, as say, Christopher Nolan, who was the director of Interstellar, or, you know, the producers of Fortnite, their job is to actually communicate uh, a sense of awe. Hmm. And, you know, that black hole image could be more dramatic. 
if it were higher resolution, you'd see more swirly structure, you'd see stuff plunging in, and we can't, we're not at that stage yet. Mm. That, um, speaking of the plunging in thing, mm. is that something that, I mean, that's something that I definitely would be really interested to see how, how a black hole, would you say like it, it's feeding, I guess? It's yeah, absolutely, it's yeah, it's feeding. It it's things. gobbling up matter and doing something inside it, and there are big jets which flow out, and yeah. some people think it's burping, but nothing can escape the black hole, so it's, you know, it, um, I think that the black hole feeds. And mm -hmm. uh, so actually that brings me on to a thing that is, is quite fascinating about black holes, that they, are, they, they really aren't black holes at all because a hole you can fill and you feed mm -hmm. a black hole and it keeps growing. That's the first thing. And the second thing is they're not really black because you know Hawking predicted, for example, that there would be a, a, a small amount of thermal radiation that would be produced uh, from a black hole, the so-called uh, uh, Hawking radiation. In fact, there's a 50 pence coin with the Hawking-Birkenstein entropy uh, formula printed mm -hmm. on it mm -hmm. that was released last year and re-released this year by the Royal Mint, which has that equation. Yeah. Uh, so black holes can emit radiation in principle. Uh, there's also some radiation if the wavelength is larger than the size of the black hole, and the black hole could be a small black hole. It wouldn't be captured by the black hole, it would be scattered. So they're not black and they're not mm. holes. But okay, well, there we go. <laughs> other than that, <laughs> perfectly named. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, uh, that, that, that name was coined, I think, by uh, John Archibald Wheeler. I think, is it true that they were called something else before black holes? Maybe, was it dark stars or something? That's right, um, yeah. And do you think that potentially was more accurate? Or? That's, a, I, 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 that's a great question. In fact, that, that's, a, for me, quite a sort of... A, it's the thing I, I always like to talk about when I speak about black holes. Prior to um, the notion of uh, people understanding that the black hole was an object with a, with a boundary, an event horizon and so on, that came about sometime between when Einstein first came up with his general theory of relativity, Karl Schwarzschild found the first solution of the Einstein field equations in late 1915, published in 1916. Um, and this was a Schwarzschild black hole. This was a non-rotating black hole. It wasn't understood to be a black hole at the time. Mm -hmm. It was thought of to just be the sort of exterior of a star. And there was an interior where at the edge of the interior, things broke down and there mm -hmm. were infinities. That was the event horizon. Mm -hmm. People thought that that was just a mathematical problem. Later, it was shown that that event horizon could be removed because it's what's called a coordinate singularity rather than a physical singularity and so on. And so long story short, there was a sort of journey between the, you know, the turn of the century just after Einstein's theory mm -hmm. and uh, the acceptance of black holes. But well before Einstein and his theory of gravity, we had Newton's theory, right? Right. Mm -hmm. and, and within Newton's theory, there was this so-called corpuscular theory of light. So light was understood to be particulate particles in nature. Well. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so particles feel gravity, right? Yeah. So uh, a chap called um, Reverend John Mitchell he was uh, basically a polymath. He was okay. at Queen's College, Cambridge. So he was a British scientist. Mm -hmm. He came up with the idea of what he called a dark star. Yeah. And this dark star was basically uh, an experiment in his mind. Take enough mass, concentrate it into a small enough space, and eventually the, uh, the, the light produced by that star would not be able to escape the surface of the star. It could not radiate away its own light, the light that it's producing inside. And this is the so-called dark star. And this works because of Newton's theory and the corpuscular theory of light. But then Thomas Young came around, came around sort of the end of that century. So I think this was like 1783 or 1786. Mm -hmm. That was fine. But towards the end of the century, he did his double slit experiment. Yeah. And he showed the diffraction pattern of light and interference. And then it was thought, well, light isn't a particle, it's a wave. 
Therefore, that went. <laughs> that's gone. Yeah. So, and actually, uh, Laplace, Pierre Simon Laplace, also came up with the, the, the same kind of idea of a dark star independently a few years later. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. But that fell out of favour completely. But I, so my feeling is that actually perhaps dark star is more appropriate, that maybe it's something extremely compact, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. compact that the light can't escape. But Einstein's theory tells us it's a singularity. At the center, there's actually an event, there's a singularity, mm. and the black hole is characterized by a singularity surrounded by an event horizon. So right. you can never see past that event horizon. And hiding behind it is a singularity, and that tells us there's a problem mm -hmm. because you shouldn't have infinities in nature mm. unless this singularity really exists. But if you had instead some ultra dense object, more dense than a neutron star, yeah. Then perhaps um, you could get around this, but that's highly con that's conjecture. Okay. Um, a, a black hole is is quite special in Einstein's theory. It's it has localized mass energy. It's not really uh, a star per se. Mm -hmm. um, so the truth is, we don't know what happens beyond the event horizon at all. Okay. And this is not really my area either. And the prospect of knowing what happens beyond the event horizon, well, I don't think at least with us the techniques we have right now, we, we have a means to understand that. Okay. This is the realm of basically quantum gravity, um, and that's a very difficult problem because we don't have a quantized theory of gravity. Mm. Um, so that's a very active area of research. Mm, still big unknowns there then. Mm. So M87 is 55 million light years away. So the image that we have created is actually a representation of something that has happened yes. roughly 55 million years ago. Yeah. So do we know what is happening now? Or can we hypothesize what is happening now? We need to observe for a lot longer. Sure. Uh, we've only observed on four nights. There were uh, two nights, then a gap of two or three days, and then another two nights. Over the course of a week, we observed for four nights. That's not very long. No. Um, if we can build up more of a dynamical picture of what's happening, then perhaps we can see some of the more longer-term properties of that matter swirling around the black hole. Um, so there's always the prospect that the image that you take is at a particular episode, if, if you will, within the evolution of that matter. It could be uh, a flaring episode where it gets very hot and bright, and that may not be representative of the sort of quiescent state mm. of the black hole and its environment. So we need to observe for a very long time and see those structural variations. And then we can build up a picture. And then maybe when we learn a little bit more about the black hole through that, we can extrapolate somewhat and, and think more about what's happening towards the future. But we don't even really know what a black hole is. Mm. You know, it's, 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 they are in principle very simple objects. They're characterized in terms of really just two parameters, their mass and their spin. Mm. We assume that they're charge neutral, so mass and spin. And we have some estimate of the mass and we're still working on the spin, although that's, that's, you know, that's, that's a work in progress. Yet they're so, they're so simple and yet it's still very, very hard mm. to say what is the nature of the beast. And, and that it's not something I think that we can answer by looking at radiation produced mm. in the vicinity of a black hole. Mm. You won't be able to say what it is. You can characterize it in terms of its mass and its spin, you know its size and so on. But what it is, that's more fundamental. Yeah. Um, so knowing where it's going to be in a million years, 55 million years time, mm -hmm. is it still there? 
the so first of all it probably will still be there in 55 million years because they just like to keep growing and they they get so they they can only in principle as far as we know uh, decay through Hawking radiation, which is a very, 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 very slow process. Okay. So black holes will probably be some of the last objects in the universe mm -hmm. if we believe the universe is accelerating in its expansion and will just you know, continue to do so. Mm -hmm. It'll be a very cold, desolate place, but there'll still be lots of black holes because they'll take a very long time to go from six and a half billion solar masses down into poof, nothing. Yeah. So there will still be a black hole. The question is, what will be the future of the galaxy? Because mm. the black hole is the engine of the galaxy. That's a really oh. interesting point, actually, because then I think that leads quite well onto how, how looking at and trying to measure and understand black holes actually really can teach us around about mm. the universe more broadly. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Do you mm. do you want to say a little bit more about sure. that so, relationship? So maybe? we yeah, that, that, that's a fantastic question. So we we do believe and have very strong evidence. That, uh, to say that black holes, um, they play a very important role in, regu in regulating the transport of energy mm -hmm. throughout galaxies and actually into the intergalactic medium and so on. So we have jets, for example, they can transport a lot of energy. Um, the, 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 the galaxy is powered by this central engine. You have a gravitational well, that is the black hole. The galaxy can rotate, for example, mm -hmm. that you need a black hole to, to, you need some mechanism by which this energy is regulated. Um, so we simply don't have uh, long-term observational data of this supermassive black hole. We do have observations of black holes at other wavelengths for longer periods of time, but those wavelengths of radiation are produced in regions which are, for the most part anyway, much further away from the event horizon. Mm -hmm. And what we're looking at now with the Event Horizon Telescope is radiation which is produced very close to the event horizon. Okay. So we're, we're seeing a very different picture of the black hole where its gravity becomes a dominant effect which shapes the emergent radiation mm. as opposed to, um, well, less dominant. And, you know, I'm, I'm giving a very long-winded answer no, here that's because okay. the truth is I've never, I, to think about it deeply, um, it's very hard to say other than there will be a black hole. What will happen to the galaxy? Well. Maybe we need to look at more galaxies at much higher redshift, so much further back sure. in, in the early universe. Okay. So if we see the first, like, almost proto-galaxies, some people wonder why are some galaxies spiral-shaped, why are some elliptical? Mm, there are ideas about the age of the galaxy is based on its morphology and so on. So maybe with missions like James Webb Space Telescope, when that eventually launches, yeah. um, we'll see galaxies much earlier on in the universe and maybe we'll learn something about the black holes in them as well. Did they start off as smaller black holes and did they grow over millions, uh, billions of years? How did they get so big, you know? Yeah. So these are really, these are just, these are huge questions and they are very open questions. Um, and we simply don't have definitive proof of, of this yet. Mm -hmm. There are many ways that black holes could do this. But if we believe black holes, to, if we were to say that black holes are formed from the collapse of a massive star alone, then you would only have a black hole of a few times the mass of the sun. Now, how to go from, let's say, 10 times the mass of the sun to 10 billion times the mass of the sun mm -hmm. over the period of the history of the universe of 13 billion years or so, what's well, actually a little bit less than that because mm -hmm. of you, you have to actually have stars which can collapse in the first place. Yeah. And that takes a very long time too. So in the end, 
um, you, through mergers alone, it's not possible because they'd have to have a certain rate at which they encounter each other as well. But sure. the universe is expanding mm. and things are moving further apart. So when you think about it, there has to be something else. So maybe some black holes are born big and maybe they don't form through the collapse of a single star alone, maybe through huge amounts of clouds of dust and gas or... You know, there are many ideas out there. Mm, we don't know, so we need more evidence. It. There's much more to it, mm. and we need a lot more evidence. And we need to, we need to look back much earlier in the universe. Mm -hmm. so. I was actually curious about whether there was anything sort of hiccups on, on the journey of producing mm. that image, because I guess we only see that final result, but I'm sure there were some unexpected moments as well. There, yep, there, there are definitely always challenges. <laughs> um, so it's a big team. And so, you know, the coordination is always is always a challenge. Hmm. Um, but actually, it was a challenge which was met head on. And I think we delivered on fantastically. Mm. So in terms of like things which slowed us down, maybe a little bit. Well, you know that the different telescopes are spread all around the world. And oh, yeah, there's the South Pole Telescope, for example, that you saw the pictures of. Mm. Yeah. And all of those hard drives there. Well, there's a winter. And in that winter, you can't fly. It's a no-fly oh, zone, so you have to wait a very long time to go and collect those hard drives, for example, containing that data. Uh, that seems like a, not a big deal, but you're kind of, you know, that's a bottleneck of at least a few months because mm -hmm. that data needs to all be shipped from the different telescope sites to a central location, actually two central locations, mm -hmm. one in the US, MIT Haystack Observatory, the other is at the Max Planck Institute for Radio Astronomy in Bonn. And they are basically passed through huge supercomputers that do all sorts of fun stuff to do with correlation and fringe fitting and so on. Mm -hmm. and, and basically, in a sense, putting that data together for, instead of it being one telescope, a uh, set of individual telescopes, it's sort of put together in such a way that it's like it's recorded by one massive telescope. That's very long baseline interferometry. That was a challenge. Mm. It was a challenge to work to a very tight time frame. So once we had this data, we, in a sense, had a self-imposed uh, deadline, okay. which was this all needs to be published in, in the Astrophysical Journal, mm -hmm. and we didn't have much time. Okay. And so we really, really had to work hard and fast and properly. And so we were, there were six papers, mm -hmm. and in a sense, different groups were working on different papers, but there was a lot of overlap, obviously, because... Mm -hmm. It's that sort of project. And the papers, in a sense, told a story about how that image was made from different perspectives, from a, an observational perspective, from an engineering uh, technical perspective, from an image reconstruction perspective, interpretation theoretically, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. I was involved more in the theoretical interpretation. So we had, to, we had to effectively run thousands of simulations and generate hundreds of thousands of images mm -hmm. because you have no idea about which... So when you have a simulation, you have a snapshot in time. But the question is, what is the state of the black hole at that instant in time that we observe? Mm -hmm. And we don't know, so we need to create as many possible snapshots as to compare mm. and then use that to sort of work backwards and infer the properties of that black hole, statistically speaking. And that was tough. That's a massive operation. Because we had very little time. <laughs> yeah, So absolutely. we had to pool our resources, computing facilities. You know, you need yeah. very large computing clusters to do these sorts of calculations. And people's time, you know, we're not paid to work on this project. Mm -hmm. This is something we do because we're passionate about it and we enjoy working together. Mm -hmm. And people have responsibilities in their faculties, you know. And a lot of people gave up a lot. I say gave up, that's the wrong word, excuse me. They put forward a lot of their time mm -hmm. into this. Mm -hmm. uh, and, on, and, you know, very intense 
period of, of our lives. And I think everybody was just relieved that it went so well um, because it was, uh, it was challenging to do it all in a very small space of time. Yeah. No, absolutely. I think it, it really, that captures actually exactly what I was wondering because it sounds like kind of managing such a huge operation over so many different countries mm. was difficult, but also really you reap the benefits of that and having mm. so many different perspectives. Mm. And yeah, it sounds, it sounds phenomenal. Yeah. Mm. The, the last thing I was going to ask was that following all of this fantastic uh, world famous work, um, <laughs> So what's the next step? Mm. What are you moving on to next? Um, I, I believe I saw some mention of the LISA consortium. Is Ooh, that yes. So LISA is uh, it's a it's a concept for um, space based uh, gravitational wave detector interferometer, mm -hmm. and uh, that's that's very much in the future. That's the sort of twenty thirties anticipated <laughs> that that'll be launching, but that's a whole other form of astronomy. Okay. That's 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 listening in for ripples in space-time, gravitational waves. So when you have two very massive objects, Einstein's theory uh, is a geometrical theory of gravity. <laughs> when two objects with a lot of mass, like two black holes, let's say, they get close to each other, they start to uh, circle each other, mm -hmm. and they eventually coalesce and merge. And in that process, as they start to slowly coalesce, they start to radiate some of their, their, their energy away mm -hmm. in the form of gravitational waves. And as they get closer, more and more energy is radiated. And it's those ra waves that we detect. Mm -hmm. And so what that enables us to do is to detect sources of gravitational waves. So these cosmic events, mergers of black holes and neutron stars and so on, that maybe we can't easily detect with conventional telescopes, mm -hmm. so-called electromagnetic wave observatories, wow. anything from radio to x-ray, mm -hmm. gamma ray. Um, but with gravitational waves, you, you will hear it, and then it's, you, you can say, well, okay, point our telescopes there now. Oh, something interesting has happened. So it provides you, at, at the most basic level, with a means to listen into things that you would otherwise never know were there because they're so faint. Right. But what it also does is it gives you an ability, first of all, why gravitational wave discovery, the gravitational wave discovery was so important. It was in crucial validation of Einstein's theory of gravity. Mm -hmm. And I think that is, is a phenomenal thing. But it also gives us the means to study gravity in a very, what we call, strong field regime, mm -hmm. where, where the gravity is very strong, the field is very strong. And this is not so easy to do. And what LISA will be able to do is look at many more events. And we should be able to detect things other than just black holes and neutron stars, even white dwarfs, for example, in the galactic center. And because it's a triangle rather than L-shaped interferometer, in principle, you have some vectorial information about the wave. So you kind of know where it's coming from. Okay. So you can measure like a polarization, for example, of that wave. Now, gravitational waves in Einstein's theory have two modes of polarization. But in another theory of gravity, or an extended theory of gravity, if Einstein is, is, is not complete, which mm -hmm. we have many, many good reasons to believe that his theory is incomplete, okay. we may see evidence for that. And you, cannot, you can't really do that with electromagnetic waves. Mm. But gravitational waves, you, you, you have that opportunity to do so. So they, offer, they, they give you a, a whole new window on the universe, basically. They give you a means to see things that you could never normally see. 
Wow. That is incredible. So, so I think that's a long-term thing, mm -hmm. but I think everybody in the community realises and recognises the importance of this science. But coming back to the EHT, there's an awful lot of great science still to come. Yeah. So okay. there, is, there is the stuff in the galactic centre. We haven't got a picture yet. Okay, but you're but working we'll towards it. But we're working towards it. <laughs> and it's going to be really cool. It's going to be uh, quite special, I yeah. think, because our environment and our galactic centre is close, relatively speaking. Mm -hmm. And what that means is we don't just have the EHT image. We have a lot of other data from other observatories that are looking there. Yeah. So we can really build a quite intricate picture of what's happening. And that's, that's a lot easier to do with the Galactic Centre than it is with, say, M87, yeah, which is very far absolutely. away. Mm -hmm. and so we can learn a lot about that environment. And we can learn a lot, not just about the black hole, but actually what's happening with magnetic fields and how their sort of matter is sort of being channeled along them and so on. We see huge filaments, like with Meerkat uh, telescope, you see huge uh, filaments with matter along them in the galactic centre. We can learn about the history of the black hole. So we see, there are things called Fermi bubbles, which are huge galactic are bubbles, okay. huge bubbles, which are you know extending above and below the plane of the Milky Way. Okay. And, you, and, and we wonder where they come from. So at some point there must have been like a huge explosion or some some event, mm -hmm. and then the galactic centre, as I mentioned at the beginning, is quite sort of uh, not very active, but it was active mm -hmm. presumably, and the question is, will it become active again, mm. and what would that mean for us yeah. if suddenly bang, you know, there's this <laughs> huge jet forms or something? Now I'm being silly, but, but you know, <laughs> no, there, but there's a future where that could happen, mm -hmm. and maybe learning about what's going on there now in this state. So M87 and Sagittarius A star are in very different states in their history. And they sort of almost represent opposite ends of the spectrum. One is a black hole which doesn't seem to be feeding much at all. Mm -hmm. The other is a black hole which seems to be feeding a lot. Yeah. And, and so they're really interesting cases. To compare as well, exactly. yeah, absolutely. So, well, it sounds like you're able to build a really complex picture, mm. hopefully, especially with this new new project. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wonderful. I'm gonna. I've learned that there are bubbles and filaments <laughs> that I shouldn't look up. Fermi <laughs> bubbles. That's, yeah, a whole new world. Really, really cool. Today, I have learned. <laughs> well, many things. <laughs> well, I think having uh, successfully blown all of our minds, uh, <laughs> it is uh, the job of myself and my minor to say thank you to Dr. Zira Yunsi for coming along to the podcast today. Thank you for having me. My pleasure to be here. Thank Wonderful. you so much. And uh, yeah, thank you to my mana. Thank you. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and we'll be back next month with another episode of Hypothenthuse. Thanks very much for listening.